0: Hello, and welcome to Notes from an Imaginary Place. I'm Rudy Dorneman, and this is a podcast of stories set in imaginary, fantastical places. So, in the stories I'm writing, I'm having one place for every letter in the alphabet, which means even though I'm going completely out of order, sooner or later I have to get to the letter X, which is always a bit of a challenge. So, I could take the easy way out, and give you a story about a xylophone factory. But instead, we have a Zistus. Here we go. Zistus. The plan was simple. Go to the party. Determine precisely the note the singers should sing. Leave a coded message. Exit well before any glass shattered. When the voice coach arrived, the party was already in full swing. Laughing, lounging guests, meandering musicians, VIPs chuffing about, waitstaff dodging through with trays of drinks and finger foods, singers idling beside hushed fountains, floral lapel suits, dresses, each with several pockets that held a thumb worth of soil and a single violet. All the garden-themed finery. Above, the extended arbor, the zistus, crossing the gardens from one corner to the other, its wide-spaced beams throwing shadows on the party and the party-goers, so that the voice coach moved through bands of light and wider bands of shadow. Shimmering over everything, the buzzing swarm song of the imported cicadas in the trees just the other side of the narrow lawn. It was delightful, all delightful, and all of it in honor of a poem, a poem in a box of glass. Why the party was being held in this particular garden mystified the voice coach. The space was cluttered with an abundance of topiary, follies, ponds, both reflecting and lily, Smaller trellised walkways that intersected the main zistus, three level gazebos, colonnades in which no two columns matched, ancient statues of mythological beasts, and paths that ran from one random point to another while generally avoiding the most interesting beast statues and the most inviting gazebos. The Zistus began with a narrow shady passage where even sideways walking meant brushing through leaves then widened out side to side while the vines grew thick and close above, and the interval between uprights was brief enough that, this time of day, the shade was interrupted by no more than pencil lines of light. The trellis narrowed again, but the space between uprights began to increase, and the voice coach squinted through slats of abrupt light. The interval between overhead beams stretched until the voice coach went from passing through stripes of light to passing through stripes of shadow. As the voice coach walked through this intermittent shade, they looked, they calculated, and a note formed ghost-like, silent and unsung, in the bottom of their throat. The note that would undo the glass lock on that glass box. The note that would let the ancient poem be read by modern eyes, clearly read, and at last fully understood. This was what they'd been hired for, to mill and mingle their way through the crowd, and work out the exact note that needed to be sung, exactly how loud, and for exactly how long, in order to shatter the smallest, thinnest piece of the lock's inner mechanism. They sipped some kind of colorful drink from a glass, shaped like a flower, strayed away from the box, then back toward it. They found another tray of saffron-colored baked fruit clusters. The poem was from a time when writing was new and rare, a time when the memory artists, who convened all the great telling libraries every full moon, strictly forbade any copying from paper to paper anything worth preserving needed to be memorized, as had always been the way. Passing through time meant passing through minds, passing through the mouths of tellers and retellers. Documents from that time still observe that rule, so there's never been any copy other than this one single copy of the poem, the original and only. The writing is tiny, and fills all the space from edge to edge on both sides. The spacing of the Zystus's columns and crossbeams seemed to be related to the different varieties of vines that spiraled up the posts. The ones with the little red flowers needed more shade, while the ones with the clusters of pink-white berries preferred stronger sun. And the sun was strong, to the extent that the voice coach found themselves slowing in the shade, and stepping more quickly through the light. The voice coach always wanted to put everything in the right place. When they worked on the grand history operas, they made sure that all the notes were located where the rhythm wanted them to be, that any excess vibrato was trimmed away so the note only trembled where it should tremble, and glided out smoothly everywhere else that every word was tuned so its emotion corresponded to the place where the character's heart landed in this scene, this moment in the saga. When they figured out the note today, they're to leave a half-eaten hors d'oeuvre and a half-empty glass on the table beside the topiary of the leaping frog. Their choice of hors d'oeuvre will signal the note, and they hope it would be something that they liked— and not the soggy, fishy pastry things. They can indicate sharp or flat by leaving a folded napkin under either the left or right side of the plate. They'll communicate duration and volume by folds in the napkin, and by how much of it is beneath the plate. They wandered through the sun and dark, dark and sun, edging a little closer, but never too close, to the glass box on the glass column. The glass box was the size of a tabletop that would easily seat eight. A velvet rope had been strung between the trunks of a quartet of potted palms to keep anyone from getting too close. The bands of light and shade struck the voice coach as a visual version of the pressure waves that were sound. But they were getting distracted. Maybe they shouldn't have another of those brightly colored drinks until after they'd left their message coated in crumbs and half-eaten food. On their own, they'd be back home writing their own songs, their cording box in their lap while they sat in the exact center of their voicing room, with its variable echo walls adjusted to one of their favorite presets. Although you couldn't really see it, the voice coach knew that the box and the column had been formed from a single piece of glass cast around the poem. They knew the exact thickness of the walls of that box. They knew quite a bit about the chemical composition of the glass. They'd even walked up and down the beach where the long-dead artisans had mined the sand that had been melted into that glass. The glass box kept the poem safe and let everyone see every bit of it. The voice coach had visited the poem many times, stared at it, studied it. They had no idea what it said. The poem was densely written in close, minuscule letters on both sides of the stitched-together piece of vellum. Lines of text snaked over and through each other wandered into the margins, disappeared along the stitched-together borders between sections of vellum, and could sometimes be found again somewhat higher or lower along the seam, or on a different piece of vellum entirely. The glass wavered and lensed across the text. The poem was nearly unreadable, or rather, too readable, in too many different ways, by too many different people. And over the centuries, those people had fallen into too many disputes over exactly what the poem said and how it said it. Disputes which quickly grew acrimonious and occasionally even verged on the murderous, spawning endless feuds and factions. The glass box was secured with a lock. The lock was glass and all the mechanisms within were visible as tiny and delicate as the bones of the inner ear. The box itself was far too solid to be shattered by voice, but the tiniest, most delicate elements of the lock might be. The poem in its box sat near the end of one of the shadier sections of the cistus, to ensure neither ink nor paper faded any further. When the lock was broken, the plan was to take the contents somewhere almost no one could see them, but a select few could study with microscopes and special lights, could figure out what the poem really said, and then bring the manuscript back to the world, clarified, resolved, certain, a millennium of ambiguity dispelled. The voice coach felt the note in their throat again, although they were absolutely avoiding making any sound, and were also trying very hard not to have another one of those little pastry pockets folded around spices and nuts. Then they realized that the note wasn't just in their throat, but very nearly in their ears. Someone was singing a note that edged its way steadily toward the lock-breaking tone. The voice coach's first thought was that it was too soon. They had only just left their coded message, and no one had approached the topiary of the leaping frog since. There should have been time for them to have wandered toward some entirely innocent corner of the festivities well before anything happened. Some other conspiracy was apparently attempting the same plan, however, based on their own calculations and glass analysis, their own codes and secret coordination, their own schedule, which was just a little earlier. The lock started singing back resonating, its mechanisms vibrating within like one of the cicadas in the trees. What these impatient conspirators hadn't taken into account was that as the sun moved lower in the sky, the first stripe of light had come to fall on the edge of the glass box with the lock. Reflected, refracted, and magnified by the various bits of mechanism, the light had in turn caused those bits to heat up, some a little, some a lot, and this made them resonate differently when the so carefully chosen note arrived. So the lock sang, but it didn't shatter. More voices joined the first. They were trying to add volume, add power to the note, but the voice coach knew it wouldn't work. The lock's inner mechanisms rattled, then went still. The singers kept singing, The glass column under the box seemed to shimmer. A weakness near the column's base gave way with a sharp pop, and the whole thing listed to one side. But neither the box nor the lock cracked. The singers warbled down to quiet. A particularly drunken clutch of partiers cheered. The voice coach didn't know if they were poem-freedomists, or if they were anti-freedomists, celebrating that the poem was still secure, or if they were oblivious partygoers who thought this was all just part of the entertainment. Plainclothes guards hustled the singers away. A gaggle of partygoers followed, some shouting, taking sides, others just following to see what happened, toting their drinks and snacks. The voice coach imagined that their own co-conspirators were drifting inconspicuously toward the exits. In the quiet that followed, they watched as the sun moved on from the lower corner of the box, and the lock was all in shadow again. They walked up to the box and let free the sound that was locked up in their own throat. There was no rhythm, only sustain. There was no vibrato, only intensity. There was no emotion in the note, but feelings churned below the voice coach's diaphragm. The note was pure, so pure they felt as if their heart would shatter along with the lock. At first it looked like the lock had misted up on the inside. Then the voice coach saw that the haze was an infinite number of tiny cracks. They breathed in, took a sip of their sugary beverage, and watched as the lock mechanism dissolved into sand. They lifted out the ancient parchment and unfolded it, the vellum nearly falling apart on the seams. They recognized at once, the writing wasn't just a poem. Those feathery, nearly invisible marks among the letters were notes. It was a song. Without thinking, they were singing. The ancient words were only sounds to them. But the tune was clear on the paper, powerful in their vocal cords. They turned the poem song over in their hands, following the letters and the melody, and the party-goers joined in. Everyone seemed to know the song as soon as they heard it. Already the voice coach heard harmonies above and below their own voice, shifting counterpoints from somewhere in the direction of the nearest fountain. The poem fell to dust in their hands, drifted over a spiky bush with hanging iridescent blossoms that were momentarily dulled then blown clear again. But the song grew stronger around them, and the voice coach heard new voices further off, picking up the tune. Although the song was gone, they knew it would never disappear. That was Zystus, Thanks, as always, for joining me on Notes from an Imaginary Place. I'll be back in a month with another story from another imaginary place. Thanks, as always, for joining me on Notes from an Imaginary Place. I'll be back in a month with another story from another imaginary place. In the meantime, one thing you might want to check out is uh, a recent interview that I did that is posted on the website of Cemetery Dance Publishers and I have a link to it on my website so that will get you right there. Mostly in the interview I'm talking about the story I had this summer in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction but there is a bit at the end of the interview where I talk about this podcast and some of the ideas behind it so you may want to uh, check that out. Again the link's at my website. So thanks again, and uh, have a great month.